Well, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're in Jonah in our sermon series. Jonah is about two-thirds way into your Bible. That may or may not help you. It's after some of the major prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. If you can't find it, no shame and look at the table of contents. I do want you to open up the Word if you have it, to see it with your own eyes as we read it in a few moments. This is our third sermon in the book of Jonah, and the sermon series title is God's Mercy on His Enemies. And today's title from Jonah 1.17 through 2.10 is Prayer from the Deep. Prayer from the Deep. All right. Y'all there? Great. Well, according to the Center for Disease Control, sadly, 10 people die each and every day by, quote, unintentional drowning. Surprisingly, 80% of those are male. Unsurprisingly, ages 1 to 4 have the highest drowning rates. The odds are, even in a congregation this size, that you know someone personally who has suffered such a loss. Or you've certainly heard the stories of those who have. Well, Cindy and I almost suffered such a loss ourselves with our firstborn son, CJ. Yes, he was male, check. Yes, he was age one to four, check. CJ was almost another statistic. It was a beautiful day in Wakiva Springs up in central Florida. And Cindy and I were talking to a friend. We were near the banks of the, of the spring itself. CJ, our son, was about three feet away. But our backs were turned to the water. And as we were speaking to our friend, suddenly she yelled and she lurched forward. We turned around and there was our son nearly sunken to the bottom of the river's edge, spring's edge. And because it was a clear spring-fed river, I still recall seeing his body down at the sandy bottom. I don't remember who pulled them out. I'm sure we all jumped in there, grabbed our hands, and pulled them up. And then there is that, that second or split second that many of you have experienced with a newborn when you're waiting for their first breath. It was almost too late. It was almost too late. Our son was saved at a moment too soon. And as parents, we were shaken to the core. You see, I'd always picture drowning, maybe like you see or think about in the movies, where there's yelling and flailing of arms, that you would know that they're going down. But if you've been near a drown, or you've heard about those who have, there's a saying, drowning does not look like drowning. In other words, drowning is often a silent affair. And the voices of those who are drowning are never, ever heard. Well, today we're going to hear the story of one such man who was intentionally drowning, and yet whose voice was heard from the depths. And he was saved, and his name is Jonah. 
The story of Jonah here in chapter 2 is an Old Testament story of death and resurrection. Oh, but it's also a New Testament story of death and resurrection. It's a story of the person and work of Jesus Christ in salvation. And it's a story for each and every one who is here this morning. Well, see, this sermon is not so much about what we are to do. This sermon really isn't filled with explicit commands or imperatives. This isn't a sermon to make you feel guilty. This is a sermon for the guilty, for those sinners like you and me, for those like Jonah. It's a sermon for those who are despairing and in need of deliverance. For those of you who are suffering, or metaphorically speaking, drowning this morning, that you may know that your voice and cry for help is heard. It's not muffled. It's not garbled. But it's heard by our Lord and Savior. It's also a sermon for those who have been delivered and need to remember the deliverance that God has worked in their lives How God has heard your cry and saved you by his great mercy. That you need to remember, as I do, from where we have come. You see, this is ultimately a story about hope. A story about hope and gratitude that leads to the unmistakable conclusion of Jonah in chapter 2, verse 9. And it's this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. With that, let us read our text. For this morning, I'm going to start with Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and go through chapter 2, verse 10. Verse 10, excuse me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closing over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray, church. O Lord... Oh, Lord, I need you this morning. We need you this morning. 
as I was driving in this morning. Just the song that reverberates in my head. Lord, if I ever needed you, it is now. Lord, may that be our cry. May that be our cry wherever we are this morning. May it be our cry from the deep, knowing that for those in Christ Jesus, that you hear our cry and you hear our prayer for deliverance and for life. And for that, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, number one, let's take a look this morning at the setting of our narrative and what we just read and are about to expound upon. See, last week, if you were here, we left off in chapter one with the so-called prophet Jonah hurled into the sea. The runaway prophet had become the prophet thrown overboard to quell the raging seas. But as you know, that's not the end of the story. There were things that God had yet to teach Jonah. To teach Jonah about himself, to teach Jonah about God's great and sovereign mercy. In God's classroom, God's chosen classroom for this lesson was the belly of a humongous fish. So we read these words in John 1, 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This one verse alone, verse 17, has captured the imagination of countless children and children's books. I got to say adults as well. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah whole. Was it a whale? Was it a sperm whale? Was it a great shark? We're simply not told. But I have a lot of questions, as you might as well. What would it have been like to have been inside the stinky belly of a fish, of a whale, that purportedly... It's between 104 and 108 degrees. You thought South Florida in the summertime after a rainstorm is humid? No, this is humid. Can you imagine being inside there sloshing around in the gastric juices of a large fish in the pitch dark? What was it like? We're not told. Not in any detail, at least But what we are told is this. It was the Lord who appointed this great, enormous fish. You see, Jonah wasn't saved from the fish. Jonah was saved by the fish who swallowed him whole. The fish belonged to the Lord and to his appointed purposes. You see, the real real drama here in this story is not what is happening inside the whale. Now, hear this. The real drama is what is happening inside Jonah. What is Jonah wanting to show? What is Jonah, what is the Lord wanting, excuse me, to show and to teach Jonah? And in verses 2, verses 2 through 9, we get a peek into Jonah's very thoughts. We start off with verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, Notice the indentation that follows in verses 2 through 9. What we have in these verses that follow is not prose, but it's poetry. It's a prayer, much akin or like the poetry in the Psalms you would read in the book of Psalms. In this psalm, in this prayer, 
we hear the cry of a man in a moment of crises, when his life is flashing before him, much like what I shared two weeks ago when I was in that car accident and everything slowed down before my eyes. Also in this prayer, we not only hear the cry for deliverance, but we hear a cry of thanksgiving for one who has been radically, dramatically saved. But don't be mistaken, church. This is not a story about a great fish, primarily. It's a story about a great God. It's a story about his great and sovereign mercy. Before we take the plunge with Jonah into the deep, into his prayer, I want to help you here. And I've wrestled a little bit with this book, and I want to share some things that maybe I should have shared two weeks ago in the introduction to Jonah. But if you're like me, I've read this book, and I'm like, well, what do I do with Jonah, this protagonist in the story? How do I understand his role, and how do I apply it? Well, I want to help you to know how to view Jonah in this book, even in the prayer itself, that we may properly interpret, and we may properly applaud the Lord has from this story to our lives today. You see, there are things about Jonah in this story that we should not relate to. That is, we should not imitate. Why is Jonah in the raging sea in the first place? Well, you know the answer, I believe. Because he's running from God. He is disobeying God's commission to go to Nineveh. And he ran the opposite direction. Not only that, it says he's running from the presence of the Lord. That is not a Jonah to imitate. You know that. I believe I know that as well. You see, Jonah serves in one sense as a foil in the story. What is a foil? A foil is a person or thing that makes another thing look better by contrast. I'll give you a simple, silly, imperfect illustration. You've seen the diet plan and programs advertisements. Usually, you get two photos, right, of one who has been through that diet program. You get the before picture, right, the before photo, and you get the after photo. Now, I love looking at these photos, particularly the before photo. I mean, it looks like the person hasn't slept in eight days. They've been under intense, you know, interrogation for the last 24 hours. Their hair is disheveled. Their eyes are watery. You know, their shoulders are slumped over, you know. They're just the right angle so you can see their gut or muffin top. You know what I mean? They're just there, you know. And then you see side by side the after photo, right? Their hair is combed. They're bright-eyed and smiling. Shoulders are back, guts sucked in. They're looking like a million bucks, aren't they? Yeah, you've all seen it. Well, that first before photo is a foil. It's a foil to show the results, the after results, to magnify those results. All right. Well, in this story, Jonah often is a foil. Throughout much of the book, in fact, his hardened heart is to be contrasted with God's merciful hearts. We saw it in the very first three verses of Jonah. Maybe you remember this observation at the conclusion of that sermon from the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible, and I want to read it to you again in case you missed it. We read this. Jonah was in a good place, doing good work, enjoying a good life. Then God said, Jonah, I want you to go to another place and do a different work 
for the sake of people I love, people who are facing an imminent judgment. Jonah said no. Jesus was in heaven, ruling the universe by the word of his power, adored by angels. He was in the best place, doing the best work, and enjoying the best life. Then the father said, go to another place where you will be utterly rejected. You will live a life that will lead to torture, crucifixion, and death. You will become an atoning sacrifice for people I love who are facing an internal and eternal judgment. And Jesus said yes. Jesus said yes. Jonah was the prophet who said no to God's mission of mercy. He's the foil. And Jesus was the ultimate prophet who said yes to God's mission of mercy. Once again, even in today's text, God's mercy is to be magnified as he saves Jonah, the undeserving prophet. Jonah is the foil who highlights God's sovereign mercy and salvation. But just... Just as there are things that we should not relate to or imitate here by looking at Jonah, there are undoubtedly many things that we do relate to when we view Jonah. Perhaps you've felt just that as we begin our journey through this book. There are things about Jonah which we can relate to in our humanity, yes, and in our sin. You look at Jonah, you look at the before diet photo, and say, yeah. That's me too. Maybe you've experienced that already in this sermon series. I know that I have. Perhaps you've felt just your stinginess in regards to giving, showing, and extending mercy. Maybe you've felt the rebuke yourself as I have of wanting mercy for yourself, but justice, meaning punishment and wrath for your enemies. Perhaps you've identified with Jonah in your desire to run from God. Or perhaps you can identify from last week's sermon of Jonah who is sleeping in the belly of the boat. The storms are raging and Jonah's just trying to sleep it off. Ignore it as if nothing is happening. Perhaps you can relate. Or maybe, just maybe, you found yourself rejoicing in God's great salvation. In his great mercy, Sean showed towards you. Oh, I hope that's you. And if it's not, I hope it's you by the end of the sermon. So to recap, Jonah is someone who, by and large, we are not to relate to and to imitate. But, nonetheless, he is someone we can relate to in so many ways. And lastly, Jonah is someone we simply can't relate to in one significant way. You see, Jonah serves the type of Christ in our story. He's not the Christ. As you know, he's far from it, as we've seen. Yet Jonah points to and anticipates the person and work of Christ. In other words, Jesus is the greater Jonah. You see, we read this book. It's an Old Testament book, but we read it as Christians. This book, the book of Jonah, that is, was written well before the time of Christ, before he came to live and to die on the cross. But we 
must read it as those who come after Christ's death and resurrection. Why? Because this whole prayer that we're going through, that we just read, found in Jonah chapter 2, finds fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is made explicitly clear, as we'll see on, on your screen, Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. I want to read Christ's words. He is speaking to the unbelieving religious leaders of his day. And he refers to Jonah as a type of himself. We start with verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see it? Jonah was entombed in the belly of a great fish for three days, just as Jesus was entombed in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah's preaching, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come, was validated by the miraculous deliverance he experienced from the belly of this fish. So was Christ preaching, validated by his resurrection from the dead. Indeed, someone greater than Jonah has come, and it is Jesus. So we read this prayer now, not just identifying with Jonah, but we read this prayer identifying with Christ as one who has delivered us, as one who has delivered us from the peril of sin and death to new life. Now, with all that in mind, let's now go through Jonah's prayer, starting with the first portion, verses 2 through 6a. We'll call this portion, as in your outline, the prayer, the descent of despair. In these verses, Jonah is recounting that he was on the brink of death. In verse 2, the beginning of his prayer, we read that Jonah calls out to the Lord, quote, out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol was considered the realm of the dead, the realm and fate of the wicked. And just to drive the point home here with a poetic effect, Jonah finishes this portion of the prayer in verse 6 with these sobering words. I went down to the land. That word land could be interpreted pit or grave. Whose bars closed upon me forever. You see, it was believed in the Near Eastern worldview of Jonah's time that there were gates to this Sheol. That these gates were a portal into the netherworld, into the grave, so to speak. All of this is graphic, image-laden way of Jonah expressing that he was near death. He was closer to death than he was to life at this moment. Many of us here have probably been through near-death experiences. You may not have phrased it this way, but this is what we're hearing. A man who is on the brink of death. But please note, Jonah's fears here were not just fears of physical pain 
or even the discomfort, the real discomfort of being asphyxiated, of drowning. We read in verses 3 and 4 these words. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Now catch verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. In other words, I'm driven away from your presence. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Do you see the irony here? The prophet who was running away from God's presence is now lamenting that he is being driven away from God's presence in death. The very presence he had earlier sought to escape. Instead of fleeing God's presence, Jonah is now longing for it. Thus his resolve to look upon God's holy temple, the special place of God's dwelling. Jonah is like a child. It's like a child with his parents in a shopping mall. His parents are trying to speak to him. The child and the child has, wants nothing to do with his parents. He's not listening to their orders or commands. In fact, the child rips away his hand and darts away across the mall. And then we find the child in the middle of the mall in a sea of strangers, bawling and crying. Because God, his parents, are not there. In fear, he will be separated from his parents forever. This is what Jonah is now experiencing. To quote one commentator, T. Desmond Alexander, quote, It is not annihilation and death that Jonah fears here, but rather the prospect of being abandoned in Sheol and consequently separated thereafter from God. Maybe you're here this morning and you can relate to Jonah's fear of abandonment in life and or in death. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are suffering in silence, all alone, away from the benevolent presence of the Lord. You are not in Sheol, but you know what? You sure feel like it. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are drowning You're drowning in your marriage. You're drowning in your parenting, in your finances, in your poor health. You're drowning in your addictions, in your enslaving passions. And you're crying out for help. And you say, Corey, my cry is not being heeded. It is not being heard. God is absent. And you feel like he is has abandoned you. If any of these scenarios describe you, there is a cry. There is a cry that God wants you to hear this morning. It's the cry that silences all other cries of our hearts. It's the cry of the greater Jonah. It's the cry of the one to whom this story points. It's the cry of Jesus You see Jonah's cry and prayer not to be abandoned here in this prayer, not to be forsaken, is echoed in the cry of Christ. It's echoed in Christ's prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. And it's echoed most poignantly at the cross at Calvary. 
It's the cry of Jesus, the Son of God, who was abandoned and who was forsaken by the Father on the cross. Why? So we would not be abandoned in life or in the grave, despite our sin, despite our rebellion. Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the sin that alienated us from a holy God in his presence. Jesus Christ went to the cross to bear the wrath of our willful rebellion against God so that sin would no longer stand between us and a holy God. In doing so, in being our sin bearer, Christ was forsaken by his holy father on the cross. There are no more piercing words from the cross than those we read in Mark chapter 15, verse 34 on the slide. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever grief, Whatever despair you may feel in your circumstances or your sin, Jesus has entered into a state of forsakenness beyond anything you or I could ever imagine. Total abandonment from God. You see, it's easy to think that God, Jesus, was sparing the physical pain and the agony of the cross. But it was so, so much more. It was the cup of God's wrath that he was to drink. It was the understanding that for the first time in his eternal existence, he was about to experience the torments of hell, so to speak. The abandonment of God as he hung there on the cross. It's why Jesus said those words only a few days prior, the Garden of Gethsemane, as he set his face to the cross. To the disciples in the garden, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And to his Father in heaven, when he prayed on that faithful night, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father, did not remove the cup of his wrath. And Jesus drunk it to the last drop. Jesus was abandoned that we might never be abandoned. Even in our darkest hour, even in the deep of deeps, even in our solemn grief, even in our sin. He went to the cross so that our cries of deliverance would be heard. If you're here this morning and you have not placed your saving trust in this Jesus, God is willing and ready to hear your cry for deliverance and salvation if you humble yourself, if you repent and turn from your sin of running away from God like Jonah, if you repent of your rebellious ways and turn to him as your only deliverance and salvation. God's arm of salvation can reach you no matter how far you have sunk. And if you are here, I assume this is most of you, 
and you have placed your saving faith in Christ, oh, this cry on the cross is still for you. Just because we are saved doesn't mean we stop crying. No, we still cry out to God. We still need him, just as we needed him on that day of our salvation. Have you ever been around a mother with her crying young child? I can recall, oh, the many days when we were in social settings and we were with other friends. Perhaps I was talking to the friends. We're watching a ball game. And we're together as families. And there are multiple young kids in the room. And inevitably, my wife would turn to me and says, Corey, did you hear that cry? Hey, that's the cry. I, that's our son. I'm like, Cindy, I, <laughs> there's all these babies around. I, that's a cry. Yeah, someone's crying. Would you check it out? So, of course, I would go check it out, go into the other room, the porta play, and sure enough, my son would be crying. There's just an ear. Mothers are instinctively tuned to hear the cry of their child. To me, it was just a cry. But not to mom. It's not just another cry. It's the cry of their son or daughter. God knows the cry of his children. He hears them. And we are to call out and to cry for deliverance. Oh, again and again. Oh, we're saved but once. But as you and I know, there are areas of our life in which we still need deliverance from the sin and the evil around us. Oh, there may be some here. You're saying, yeah, I'm drowning in my marriage. We don't even talk anymore. Oh, drowning doesn't look like drowning. I may not even know it. Others around you may not even know it. But you're drowning. Oh, I I want you to to share with those friends who may be able to help you, confidants who can give you wise counsel and encouragement. But you know what else I want? I want you to cry to Jesus. It may take all the humility you have to grab the hand of your spouse and say, Jesus, to cry for help. Maybe you're there in your parenting. You have children who are wayward. You tried everything, every parenting technique. You're asking for counsel. What do you do? And that's good. I want you to ask for counsel and help. At the end of the day, you grab your wife and say, we need to pray. We're praying to Jesus. Maybe some of you are in financial straits right now. You are in serious financial debt. And yes, it's going to take a lot of hard work to get out of it. Maybe some of the things happened that you couldn't control. The market. You're upside down in your house. But perhaps you've also made foolish decisions. And yes, you want a budget. Yes, you want to have accountability. At the end of the day, you need to cry out to Jesus. He's the only one who can change you. He's the only one who can deliver you from where you're at. It's Jesus. Perhaps some of you are in poor health. Your body is breaking down by the day. Oh, cry out to Jesus. Cry out for healing. And if it doesn't heal you here on this earth, yes, cry out for persevering grace until the day when you are healed perfectly when you inherit your glorified bodies in heaven. Cry out to Jesus. Maybe some of you are enslaved to passions and addictions that you can't seem to break. Oh, yes, look at your hearts and the idols of your heart. Get other people around you who can help you and provide accountability. But cry out to Jesus, the only one who can truly save you and change you. You see, God is ready to turn your descent of despair into an ascent of thanksgiving. And that leads to the next point and the next portion 
of Jonah's prayer, the ascent of thanksgiving, found in verses 6, the latter part of 6, 6b, through verses 9. But I want to go back to verse 2. I want to read it again now. Jonah, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And here comes the turning point now in verse 6, second half of verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, yet, you brought up my life from the pits, O Lord my God. In verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord in my prayer. That word prayer, it's a prayer for supplication, of crying out, came to you into your holy temple. Here in these verses, we have Jonah saved from the clutches of death. His life is literally fainting away. He is most literally on the brink of passing out, of losing oxygen. And his prayer and his supplication is heard and answered. What we have here is a picture of resuscitation. It's a picture of resurrection, if you will. God has given him his life back. God has given Jonah a lifeline. That lifeline is a great fish. But church, we have been given a better lifeline. We have been given Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And Jonah then comes to his senses. He concludes his prayer with the acknowledgement in verse 8 that all those who worship vain idols cannot hope cannot hope to receive the grace and mercy he has just experienced. The hope of God's covenantal, steadfast love. And then with verse 9, we see thanksgiving. And Jonah vows that he will show his gratitude, not to pay back God for such grace, for that is impossible, but in response to his miraculous deliverance. Oh, church, this is the right response. This is is the, quote, natural response to anyone who's been delivered. It's why we sing before the preaching of the word on Sundays. And hopefully it's the words that you are singing as you leave this auditorium. It's the words of those who have been delivered from their sin. And then we hit the conclusion and the climax of his prayer in verse 9. Jonah burst into exclamation. Salvation! belongs to the Lord. Oh, in many ways, it's a theme of the book of Jonah. You could say it's a theme of the entire Bible as well. It's the lesson Jonah learned and is reaffirmed through his death and his resurrection experience. Salvation is from the Lord. It belongs to him, it's from him, and it's God's exclusive sovereign mercy It is the Lord who appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 17. It's the Lord who heard Jonah's voice. Verse 2. It is the Lord who brought up Jonah's life from the pit. Verse 6. And it is the Lord who spoke to the fish to vomit Jonah out upon dry land. Verse 10. Jonah understood quite well that he was incapable of saving himself. Jonah He gets it. Do you get it? Some of you are, you're crying out. But you know what? 
You're crying out to everyone but God. You're crying to your spouse. That, I'm not saying that's inappropriate. You're crying to friends. You're complaining. You're complaining a lot. But you're not crying out to God, the only one in the end of the day who can deliver you. There's others of you. I don't need to cry out. I got my lifeboat right here. But what you don't know is your lifeboat has a hole in it. So you're spending all your time. You got the little foot pump. You're pumping up the raft. You got your bike pump. You're pumping it. So the only problem is, there's more air going out than there is coming in. And you're sinking. And you're drowning. And you're not crying out. Jonah understood that there's no way he was coming up from the watery grave unless God came down and scooped him up from the clutches of death. Friends, gratitude springs from this reality that we cannot save ourselves. The Bible is clear regarding our inability to save ourselves. We read in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't groggy in your sins. You weren't a little tired in your sins, taking in a little too much water. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were sunk. We are no more able to save ourselves than Jonah was able to save himself in the depths of the sea. And God was no more obligated to save us sinners as he was Jonah, the runaway prophet. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This truth is a comfort and a blessing to Jonah. It evoked praise and brought comfort to this man. How much more should this bring blessing and comfort to us on this side of the cross? The name Jesus. You know what it means? The Lord saves. Or to put it another way, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our aim in reading this text as Christians is not to find in Jonah some example to follow or simply to reject. It's to find the crucified and resurrected Jesus, the only one who can bring life from death, the only one who can bring hope to the, bra- to the grave, the only one who can bring salvation to our souls. There's no other name by which we are saved. Jesus. Jesus. The Father may have abandoned Jesus at the cross, but he did not abandon him in the grave. And because he lives, we live today as well. You see, when we read these verses, when we read particularly Jonah 2, verse 6, and we read these words, we're reading this, these words in this prayer as a Christian. We read in verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet... But you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. That sounds like, sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul writing in Ephesians 2, verse 4. Oh, I love this word. It's one of the most important conjunctions in the Bible. But, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated 
with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Then comes the well-known verse, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Church, may this truth fill our hearts with gratitude, not boasting. And may it also embolden our hearts for action. This sermon series in the book of Jonah, it was chosen so that we might grow in our mission, a mission of mercy, to connect neighbors through Jesus Christ. Our neighbors need to hear the voices of rescued prophets snatched from the jaws of death. They need to hear the offerings of thanksgiving and gratitude to our God. They need to hear Jesus and his cry upon the cross. They need to know that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so do we. Let's pray. I invite the worship team to come forward at this time. Dear Lord, we come to you. Many of us here as recipients of your great mercy. As those who have been delivered from the bondage of sin and death. Oh Lord, would you fill our hearts now with gratitude as we sing towards you, our Lord, towards you, Jesus. And may as we look upon the salvation that you have wrought, may we also look at the very things in our lives right now where we feel trapped, where we feel like we are drowning, where we feel alone or abandoned. And may you fill our hearts with faith and hope that you hear our cry, the cry of your children, that you are not a deaf God, that you are not an indifferent God. The cross tells us so. So Lord, we come to you now crying out to you, our Lord and our Savior. Oh Lord, our Deliverer. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us, we pray. Amen.